Um, we, as a church, like to do expository preaching. That's kind of our main diet, and I'm really, really excited. We're really excited. Well, I'm really excited. Hopefully, you're really excited to start a new series this morning called Samuel, King of Kings. As I said, the main diet of our church is to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as we look at this book together for the next 27 years, it's a long book. Um, there are three main characters we'll see. First is Samuel, of course. He's the prophet, priest, and judge of Israel. Uh, he will anoint the first king, Saul, and then David. King David, the second king of Israel, and, and probably best loved of all the kings that reigned in Israel. The series though they are historical in nature, are not simply a a, a history lesson per se, because it is the story of God. It is the historical redemption of all that God is doing to reclaim and redeem his creation. What you need to know, and because I'm going to be talking about this as we go on, is that 1 and 2 Samuel, Samuel originally began as one book called Samuel. Same with Kings. 1 and 2 Kings used to be Kings. It was Samuel and Kings. It wasn't until the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. You see the LXX in your Bibles. That's the, that's the number for 70. 70 scholars put together, took the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and, and translated into the Greek. At that point, they broke Samuel and Kings into four books called the Basilion, which means kingdom in Greek. And now it's 1 Kings, 1, 2 Kings, 1 Samuels, 2 Samuels. So I'm going to be talking about Samuel. When I do, I mean the whole book, 1 and 2 Samuel. Now before we get into the book, we need to understand context. It's been, a, it's been a regular practice of mine since I've been here over 12 years now. Yeah, 12 years actually this week. Um, it's been my practice to, to talk context, to talk contextually of where Samuel Samuel, the book of Samuel fits in Israel, the life of Israel and in the work of God's historical redemptive work, Genesis, Revelations, all that God is doing as, as Christ returns, establishes his kingdom and wraps up history as we know it. So I want to do that. I want to spend some time. It's going to be a little while. If you like history, great. You're going to love this. If you don't like history, I don't know what to tell you because that's where we're going. Uh, Hopefully you will recognize how important it is to interpreting the scripture and understanding context. So that's where we're going for a little while. And I want to start with creation. You say, really, Genesis 1? Yes. The hospitality team will be by to pick up your lunch menu in just a moment. No, it won't be that long, but it may be. Um, And that God, the Bible opens up with with God creating the world ex nihilo out of nothing. And in that, he creates man and women, man and woman, in his image. We call it the Imago Dei, in his image, in his likeness, with dignity, with value, and with worth. We belong to him. God tells Adam, his first one he created, to obey him. To obey him and he will be blessed with a relationship with all that he needs and he'll be, have intimacy with his God. Obey me and you will be blessed or sin and rebel against me and you will be cursed and it will not go well for you. Right? It's a sign of a, uh, it's the work of, of, a, of a covenant. And as we know in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God, didn't trust him, mistrusted him, went their own way, did their own rebellion and they were separated from God. Their sin entered the world, and we now find ourselves separated from God from birth. We are both sinful by nature and by choice. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that brokenness and chaos and rebellion, instead of God just saying, you're on your own, God speaks in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that rebellion. God speaks. If you don't know Genesis 3.15, mark it in your Bible, know that verse. Because it is the promise that God speaks in the midst of this darkness that someday he'll send the deliverer. He will send the seed of a woman or the offspring of a woman whose heel he would be, would be bruised, but he, the seed of the woman, will ultimately crush the enemy, Satan, and destroy death itself. As the story continues, God's working his promise out in John 3.15, and we get to Noah, and Noah and the flood. And God destroys the earth, but saves Noah and his family, and makes a covenant with Noah, and he says, I will never destroy the earth by water again, and I make a covenant with you, and the sign of the, sign of the covenant is a rainbow. The rainbow's been jacked up this, 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 these days, but the actual rainbow is a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah. Will not destroy the earth by water ever again. As the story continues, we get to Babylon, where the people tried to build this tower, a name for themselves. 
But God wasn't having it, so he stepped in and he confused the languages and he scattered the people out of uh, that place all over the earth, all parts of the earth. Even though, if you read the book of Genesis, you'll know in chapter 6, God's not happy with his creation. He says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Even with that, God did not abandon his creation. And in the promises of God, he calls a man by the name of Abram, whose name will be Abraham. And he calls Abraham out of this land, his pagan land, to go to a land in which he will show him, which is the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And God makes his everlasting covenant with Abraham, a descendant of Adam, seed of the woman, and his offspring. And he told him that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that out of him will come kings. His descendants will be kings, and he will be a father of the multitude of nations, and I will be your God. He promises him a land, he promises a, 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 a strong, multiple lineage, and the Lord himself will come from Abraham. This calling, this covenant continues with the patriarch, or the patriarchal period. This unconditional covenant promise made to Abraham is now extended to his sons, Isaac and Jacob. If you know the story, Jacob has 12 sons. They've come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them we know his name is Joseph. Joseph's that guy who had his wonderful, sweet, loving brothers who beat him up and threw him in a pit to die. Brothers like that who needs enemies, right? And then they wound up getting him out of the pit and they sell him to a, a band coming by, going to Egypt, and they sold him into slavery. And then they go and tell Jacob, the father, that he's dead. And after all kinds of ups and downs with Joseph, we don't have time to get into it, he becomes second in command in Pharaoh's army. In Pharaoh's reign. And when a famine comes to Israel, where Joseph's brothers are and his dad, and God is sovereign over the famine, they have no place else to go but to Egypt to find food. And they they get together, they go to Egypt, and who's there giving out food? Joseph. Great story. They get the food, the family is fed, and Israel, the 12 sons, are are saved from starvation. They wind up in a place called Goshen. Not Goshen, New York, just in case you're from downstate. Genesis ends up with Jacob dead. The 12 tribes are in Egypt. And Exodus opens up and the king forgets Joseph and all the things that Joseph did. And as time went on, they start seeing all these little Jewish boys running around with their family and children are popping up all over the place and it kind of freaks the king out. So he starts putting pressure on them and then he leads them into slavery. You know the story. And while they're in Egypt, in slavery, God raises up Moses. Moses has an encounter with God through the burning bush. He says, go back to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh that Yahweh, I am who I am, said, let my people go so that they may worship me. It wasn't about just release. It was so that they may worship me. King's like, yeah, right, sure. Go back to work. God sent 10 plagues. We know the plagues. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh's like, get your people and get out of here after all the dead firstborn. But that don't last very long. Pharaoh goes after him. You remember the story? Moses, Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. Moses goes through with the, with the Israelite army. Pharaoh's army follows after them. And what does God do? He closes the Red Sea. Destroys the armies of Pharaoh. And the book of Exodus is all about how Moses raised up by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery. They wandered, we know, in Exodus for 40 years with with a promise, though, that someday they will return to the land of Canaan. And in that context, in that wandering, in that part where God delivered them out of slavery, delivered them and redeemed them, God gives them the Mosaic Law. And it's important to realize that it was after they were delivered. It was after their salvation. It was after their redemption that God gave them the law so that they would know how and what their obligation was to this relationship with Yahweh. Exodus 19. If you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, that you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. People say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
Well, that didn't happen probably by the end of the night, right? Same thing we, that happens with us, right? Law is good, law is holy, but the law shows us we need a Savior. Moses dies on the eve of entering into the promised land because of his sin. And Exodus closes. Joshua comes on the scene. God raises up Joshua, who is, who, who is with Moses. Moses dead. Joshua takes over. And now the book of Joshua, you read about him leading the people into the promised land, including taking down, you know the story, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down as the little peas march around it. Some of you have seen Veggie Tales. What, you foolish peas? I've been watching it a lot lately with my grandson. So, so in the book of Joshua tells the story of this, this army uh, and entering into the promised land and, and, and being conquered. And, and the 12 tribes enter them into the promise of God, into the land that God had promised. And they settle down and the 12 tribes get all the prospective property that was given to them, promised to them. That's Joshua. After Joshua, as they're settled in the land, they do what most of us do. We become complacent. And rebellious. And that's the era of what's called the judges. You can read it in the book of Judges. God raises up these judges to rule over his people. Many of you know some of the judges, some of the famous ones. Deborah, a woman. Gideon. Samson. And the reoccurring theme as these Jewish families, these 12 tribes are settled in the land. The, the reoccurring theme throughout the book of Judges is very simple. Israel was settled, complacent. They become rebellious, and they, and they rebel against God. God then disciplines them, sometimes by an army, and defeating an army would come and defeat the people because God disciplines those he loves, and he uses other means to do it. So they rebel, God disciplines them, and what do they do? They say, we're sorry, we repent, and they turn back to God, and they pray, God, help us. And God raises up a judge over the people to lead them. But then the cycle continued. They rebelled, God disciplined them, they cry for repentance and ask for help, God raised the judge, and the cycle continues. And as the cyclists continue, Samuel comes on the scene. God's still keeping his promise, but it's a dark place in Israel right now. That's the context of Samuel. Samuel, the prophet, the priest, the judge, is a time during which Judges concludes... There's a theocracy. God is their king, raising up these leaders into a time of what's called a monarchy where the kings of Israel are anointed. And the last verse of Judges gives us really clearly the context. So you have Judges, then you have Samuel. The book of Ruth was put in there, but historically, Judges ends, Samuel opens. This is the last verse. Check it out. Judges 21-25. In those days, the days I just talked about, there was no king in Israel. During those days, no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No leadership. The nation seemed to be aimless without any kind of moral compass, any moral conscience. Leadership that was there. We're going to see Eli, one of the priests. They were rebellious. They were perverse. It was obvious that whoever, you know, the, the author of Judges, that the nation was headed down this disaster uh, in this cycle. And then unless God would step in and raise up a righteous king to lead the people, they were doomed. Up until the anointing of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Israel had no human king. But it's important to recognize that Israel's relationship with, with their covenant God had been portrayed for a long time as the great king, our God, Yahweh, and them being the weaker vassal, they're the ones that respond to him. And the concept, of God's, the concept of God's kingship over Israel appears throughout the Old Testament. It, it, was, it, was, it was not a concept that they were going to have a human king. It wasn't a concept that, was supposed to, supposed to, that they were supposed to abandon God as their king just because they have a monarchy. You see, the transition from theocracy to monarchy, which is... Uh, in First Samuel, was hard, but it was never meant that that God would raise up a king and that king would take the place of God. The rising of the king was still a place for someone, a human leader in Israel, to submit to Yahweh, the ultimate king. 
He was supposed to be God's man. He was supposed to follow God's ways. He was supposed to follow the will and the ways and obey God's law. Ultimately, we're going to see in Samuel that the the covenant that God makes with King David will be that he will raise up a son from the line of David who will be a judge. He, He will be perfect in his judgment he is righteous he'll be a man who will follow God's ways he will be a man who will follow and obey the will of God perfectly and he will reign on an eternal throne and his name is Jesus Christ see Samuel's not just a story Samuel's a story within a greater story that God is keeping his promise even when everything appears to be hopeless and dark God keeps his promise God will deliver his people from the greatest need that his people have, that's for you today and for me, and that is redemption from the bondage of sin and death through his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Samuel's about. But for now, we see Samuel opening up and everyone's doing right in their own eyes. And, and I, want to, I want let me share this with you too as part of introduction here. It's not inappropriate, it was not inappropriate per se for Israel at the time of the judges closing and Samuel opening, it wasn't inappropriate for them per se to want a king like the other nations. Samuel's not happy about it, but as I told you, God already told Abraham back then that he will raise kings up from his descendants. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17.20, again back earlier, God promised them a king. Their sin was not that they wanted a king. Their sin, according to Samuel, is the fact that they wanted a king and they wanted to reject God as their king. In fact, he says in, in, in 1 Samuel, we're going to read, that they were asking for a king, listen, to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Verse 20, I think it's chapter 8. That's the key. They refused to believe that the Lord God would grant them victory in his own time according to his good pleasure. Samuel goes from theocracy to monarchy, and it's messy, but the ultimate trajectory is how God will raise up a final and definite king that will reign in righteousness over an eternal throne, King Jesus. That's why we call it the King of Kings. Know this for sure. The real hero in Samuel is not David. It's not Samuel. It's Yahweh. It's God himself. He is the hero of the story. It is his story. So the book, First uh, and 2 Samuel, is broken up in, in four, four parts. Chapters 1 through 7 may be described as the prelude of the monarchy. It is it's a time of the life and the rise of Samuel. We're going to get to that next week. The life and time of Samuel, chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 through 15 is the anointing of, of Saul, the rise and fall of Saul. Saul will come to power, and Saul's a mixed, uh, you know, he starts out okay, but you'll see it ends bad. 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 4, we see David, the rise of David, and this 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 battle going on between David and, well, between Saul and David, really. And then 2 Samuel will get into the reign of David, and, and we'll look at that uh, probably in, in uh, the fall of next year. But that, that's where we're at. And, and here's my hope. My hope is that we get to see Jesus, that, that we get to worship Jesus as the true and the better King of Kings, that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. But family, listen, I also hope that as we look at this story, this, this part of God's redemptive story, that we grasp that God's inviting us, that he's inviting us to come and see what he is doing with us today during our place in God's unfolding story of redemption. Yes, they were looking back, they were looking forward, excuse me, to a king who would come that would sit on the throne of David. And yes, we look, we look back to the king that has come. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary atonement. Rose from the grave. But the redemptive history of God is not over. Scripture's over. I get that. But God is still calling his people, you and I today, here at King's Chapel, as we're looking at a building expansion, as we're calling people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is using his people to demonstrate the gospel as we love people as we forgive one another as we live kingdom-minded and declare the gospel the good news of the cross of christ what is god going to say to us as we walk through this time of first samuel that that's my interest 
Let, let's, this is what I'm going to do. The, the passage we're going to be in is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. I'm not going to read it because I'm going to read it as we go through. We're going to hit it quickly, um, but that's what our passage is. And if you're, if you're um, taking notes, a, a simple outline, um, you know, you, you can't get into Saul and, and David, the beloved king, without really, really understanding Hannah, which we'll look at today, and Samuel. You can't, it's hard to underestimate the role of Samuel and his mom, who's Hannah. Now, typical narrative, I went with the easy one. Didn't think very hard this week, I'll be honest. I had a lot to do. Uh, typical narrative, you've got a plot, you've got a conflict, you've got the climax, you've got the resolution. So that's what we're going to follow. Nice and easy. Let's look at the plot. The plot has something to do with the characters. Look at the plot with me. Let me see. Okay. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoham, the son of Eliu, Eliu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Aphrodite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina, or Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Judges closes, everyone's doing what right. God speaks. God continues and works as we are introduced to this obscure family who's being led by a man named Elkina. I, I just love the way God works in scriptures. We see him working, and even today, in ordinary ways with ordinary people. You feel ordinary? I know I do. It's so reminiscent of Jesus' birth to a young virgin girl in Nazareth. Anyway, Elkanah in some ways was a godly man, a godly descendant of, of the Levite family. He was a priest. He comes from Ephraim. The Chronicles tells us that his descendants were the ones who were uh, responsible, originally responsible for carrying of the Ark of the Covenant, very important. Elkanah was a man of means. But Elkanah has what? Not one wife, two wives. Kind of a mixed bag. I, I, I look at it as he's kind of a mixed bag. You know, you, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're one of those Bible believers. You believe all the, what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says and all your Old Testament heroes got all these concubines and, and women and wives and you must, you, must, you must believe that too or, you know, the, what do you say about all these heroes that have all these women? Like, well, first of all, you, you're correct. Their, their, their Bible does speak about some of the people of faith, David and Solomon that had m- multiple wives and concubines. I get that. And there's two things that that should tell you. When you see about a man who has multiple wives, two things it should tell you. Number one, he's a fool. (laughs) Every story of multiple wives in the Bible ends badly. Trying to love, please, provide, and care for one wife for a lifetime is more than enough. And all the married men said, amen. Amen. (laughs) He's a fool. Second, when narratives talk about Abraham having a wife and a mistress, or David, or Solomon, or even Jacob, more than one wife. It doesn't say, Jacob, uh, you know, Solomon had so many concubines, so many women, and God looked down from heaven and saw all of Solomon's wives and concubines and said, you go, bro, great job, what a flock of ladies you got there. It doesn't say that. Historical narratives are telling us what happened, not necessarily why or whether or not it's approved of God. Just because the text describes some, someone's polygamy does not mean God prescribes such family and sexual patterns. We know from Scripture, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, that God instituted and designed covenant marriage to be between one man and one woman, period. And it's true, and antiquity, unlike today, a man that has no children or a widow with no children was very, very, was it, was, they were in a very, very arduous, difficult place. Verse 2 tells us that only one of Elkanah's two wives were able to bear children. Penina was a fertile girl, but Hannah had no children. And that many theologians and, and commentaries that I read is probably why Elkanah was looking for a second wife. He had no kids. And in that culture, in the culture of bearing children, especially sons, meant you were adding to your family's economic position to care for the for the farm and for the land, and you were also adding to the nation when it came to fighting wars, right? You, you, you want to send out to battle. If everyone's barren, like, well, we got nobody to fight. 
no children means no money. And as you get older, right, you don't have nursing homes in that day. It was your family who took care of you, right? That's why I tell my kids as much as I can. I'm getting old. Remember what the Bible says. You've got to take care of me. According to the Jewish Talmud, a person without children was considered as good as dead. In fact, barrenness was, was a, 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 a legitimate grounds for divorce in that day. Women who brought many sons, particularly, and children to a family were treated with honor. And in a shame culture, which we find ourselves in, barren women were shamed. They felt useless. They, 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 you know, they, they were, uh, were not worthy. We don't understand that. Now, before we go ahead and say, yeah, a bunch of crazy Old Testament lunatics, kind of antiquity, they got nothing to do with us today, really? Every culture... Every culture says, if you have this, if you have that, if I can achieve this, then I am somebody. No more shame for me. Not many people may think about children in this way. We tend to put more value on the kind of job that you have, where a person goes to school, their education, or how a person looks, or even how well your kids are behaving, how well they are doing. Not so that they take, not so that they take care of you financially, Right? They're a financial drain. They, right? But, but it's that you could pat yourself on the back and say, look how well I raised my kids. And then I find I'm, I am, I'm valuable. I, am, I, am, I derive my worth by how well they do. From Hannah's perspective, is a culture that puts all of women's significance and security in having sons. And she can't have kids. Practically speaking, she has no significance, no value, no life, no hope. Yet through this beautiful story, this woman of faith, the scripture teaches us how women played a legitimate and even a determining role in shaping Israel's history. Hannah's faith, well actually it was the object of Hannah's faith that turned the period of dark times of judges and rebellion to a transitional period where the blessing comes of Samuel will soon anoint King David. That is the plot. Look at the conflict. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas was priest of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. I'm caring for you. I'm caring for my family. He's doing the right thing. But to Hannah, verse 5, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Every year, three times a year, every able-bodied Israelite would have to go to the temple. The temple's not built yet, but we have a tabernacle built. The Ark of the Covenant's there. It's in Shiloh. Three times a year, during three festivals, they would go up to that place. Here we find also, the first time we see Eli and his two sons. They'll become very important in the next couple of chapters. The name of God, verse 3, Lord of hosts. Verse 11, Lord of hosts, or Lord Almighty, depending on your on your translation, is the very first time in all of Scripture that the word is used. It, it means God's, it speaks of God's sovereignty, his power, his authority over all earthly and heavenly forces. He is the king of kings. He is the host of, uh, uh, the captain of the army. That's not by accident, because God's going to do something here. Elkanah doing the right thing, right? He's bringing his family, he's obeying the Lord, setting a positive example of faithfulness and godly living, bringing his family to the place of worship those three times a year. Hannah, or his other wife, Penina, had to wake him up. Honey, it's late, let's go, it's time to go. No, we see him leading the way. But I believe Penina also did not have to be encouraged to go. In fact, I believe she was waiting for those festivals, couldn't wait for those festivals. She'd have to be dragged along because it was her opportunity to rub her faithful, uh, fruitful womb and all her children in the face of Hannah. He provoked her day by day. 
So if barrenness, which is a metaphor for hopelessness, wasn't enough, she had to deal with this every single day they went up. That a rival wife throwing it up in her face. Dr. Dale Davis in his commentary says, this might, he didn't say this actually happened, but he's imagining this rivalry between Penina, who, who is not really between the two, but Penina who just is provoking Hannah. And he says, maybe something like this happened. And I'll give you it to you, the dialogue. Penina speaking, Penina speaking. Now, do all your children have your food? All your kids have your food? Dear me, there's so many of you. It's hard to keep track of all of you kids. This is in front of the family, in front of Hannah. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What, what did you say, dear? Can you say it a little bit louder? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh, yeah, that's right. She doesn't have any kids. Doesn't she want kids? Oh, yeah, she wants kids. Wouldn't, don't you want kids? Oh, yeah, I want kids. Hannah, do you wish you had children? Daddy wants her to have children, doesn't he? Oh, he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing her. She just can't have any kids. Why not? Why? Why? Because God won't let her? Does God not like Miss Hannah, Mommy? Well, I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? You, you think you'll ever be pregnant? You can imagine the dialogue. You can imagine the dialogue. And this is all before all the bullying policies took place, right? No, you can't do that anymore. Penina takes advantage of the opportunity to harass her year after year, festival after festival, day after day, without letting up. And, and the scene, I want you to see, as they go to the temple or at the tabernacle, you bring sacrifices, sin offering, guilt offering, and you bring a free will offering. And the offering that you give is sacrificial animals. You give part of that free will offering is given back to the family to care for your family, to feed your family. Right? So here he is with his family, Hannah, no kids, all these other kids with his other wife sitting at the family. Can you imagine me and the guy there? And he puts meat on everybody's plate, just enough. A little hamburger, something to hold everybody over. And then he takes a giant piece of prime rib and he puts it right on her. Here's a double portion for you. I mean, he thinks he's doing the right thing, want to fix the problem, but I don't know how good that was. You know, he, I mean, he might be adding to the problem. I don't know. You be the judge. It's just because he loves her. I think Penina knew it. To say that Hannah was deeply hurt and very distraught is probably an understatement. Verse 6, she was irritating her. She was provoking her and irritating her. The word irritate means to, to roar like a storm. Hannah was storming on the inside. Verse 7 tells us that she was weeping and would not eat. Maybe it was that she could not eat. Just sick to her stomach. In some ways, you kind of feel bad for the polygamist, <laughs> for a moment anyway. He's trying he does love Hannah, and not only does he give her a double portion, but then he says, I know what will help her. I'll tell her how great I am. That always helps, right, guys? <laughs> you don't know how good you have it with me. I'm enough for you. Hannah, he says to her, why are you weeping? We want to fix stuff, I know. And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Come on, get over it, girl. Oh, that went over like a ton of bricks. He's trying to calm her, giving her love and affection. He thinks he needs that. Maybe it helped a little bit. I don't think so. But if that was all she needed, if all she needed was the affirmation of her husband, she would be trading one idolatrous relationship for another. Kids can be an idol. Needing to have them or needing them to turn out a certain way so that you feel valued or have meaning can be replaced by another idolatrous relationship, even within marriage. I love my wife. My wife loves me. I will disappoint her. I know it's a shock to you. And I'll tell you one thing. I am one lousy God. But what does the narrator tell us about her barrenness? It says the Lord closed her womb. All the things that come our way or do not come our way are by God's sovereign divine design. He is sovereign over all things in this world. He is therefore sovereign over everything that happens and does not happen. I mentioned this the other day. I'm going to mention it again. It's a quote by John Piper, and he says this. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he wields it. He's talking about the bad times and the good, the hard times. He wields it in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure, end quote. Hannah was learning from the depths of her, of her heart, of her brokenness, of her sorrow, and her pain, that lesson. 
So what does Hannah need? What does Hannah really need in this time, this difficulty, in this sorrow, in this brokenness, sitting at this table? What does she need? Besides punching Penina right in the mouth. It might have helped for a little while, but what does she really need? That was funny, but anyway. She needs the Lord. That's what she needs. She needs the Lord. Some of you know all about this. You've been through dreadfully dark and unpleasant circumstances. Some circumstances. Some of you maybe even now. We need the Lord. And like Hannah, we find ourselves surrounded by Peninnas, culture, people, telling us we never be valuable unless we achieve this, we achieve that. We have this education, this husband, this wife, a bigger house, a larger account, a better body, a better look, whatever it may be. Otherwise, if we don't have it, we become jealous. We become covetousness. Covetousness is a problem. We feel worthless and dissatisfied. Other of us, like myself years ago, with the pain and the hurt, try to just swallow it with alcohol and drugs. But whatever the method is, deep within us, we know no human effort or creative thing can fulfill us. We cling to saviors, but they have no power. But we feel, where, where can we turn? What, what can we do? We see the climax, verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. That word Hannah rose in the Hebrew is not like I'm done eating, it's time for me to get up. It is definitive. It indicates a decisive action. She stood up in a resolve and made a choice. Something was changing. Something had changed. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat, word for seat is throne, beside the doorsteps, he's the high priest, beside the doorstep of the temple of the Lord. We'll hear more about him another day. She, verse 10, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, that's that word again, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and and not forget your servant, that prayer comes from Exodus. It is the prayer of God's people calling out to God to be rescued in the days of Moses and delivered from slavery and redeemed. She is remembering that, I'm sure. Do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12. As she continued praying... Before the Lord, if you have a Bible underlined before the Lord, literally in Hebrew is in the presence of God. You see this woman soaking in the presence of God, crying out to God in his presence. Eli observes her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her as a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Put away your wine. Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. Two different Hebrew words. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation, anger, irritation, sorrow. See two things in this prayer. Number one, Hannah takes her pain, her sorrow, her brokenness, her hopelessness, and brings them to God. She is honest. She is heartfelt. It's a heartfelt petition to God. She believed. Did, 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 did Hannah know that the Lord had closed her womb? Absolutely. Did Hannah know that God is sovereign? Absolutely. Did that automatically stop the pain? Did it stop her from being honest and pouring her heart out to God? Absolutely not. In fact, it is the gateway her pouring her heart out to get what she desperately needed, which is not a son, by the way. We'll get to that. She was deeply unhappy, but it was out of her misery and through her tears that Hannah prayed to the Lord. Her prayer to the Lord of hosts knows that not only is he sovereign, but he cares about her. He cares for her. When everyone around us doesn't understand, we can rest upon the compassion and the care and love that God has for us. To know your circumstances, to know your situation that's been brought upon you, to know that the suffering you're going through has ultimately flowed through God's hand should not lead us, as we see in this prayer, to some stoic fatalism. If God is sovereign, and who am I to do anything? I'm just going to have to take this on the chin. That's not what happened. That's not real intimate faith. It also doesn't lead to resentment. We don't say, say well, God has done this for me. I'm done with you. 
No, real genuine faith, intimacy with God means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and his goodness toward us in all things. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, nothing in all creation, Romans tells us, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Faith in God, as you see here, leads us to, to, to our troubles, to deal with our troubles honestly and to pray. And that God is sovereign over all things. That's what Hannah does. It's that kind of faith. It's that kind of heartfelt prayer and faith that we find in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The reward is what she needs. Again, it's not a son. We'll get back to that. Look at the second part of the prayer. Notice verse 11, she takes a vow. It's called a Nazarite vow. You find it in number six. A woman or a man would take the special vow and they would be consecrated to God for a specific season. They would say, no wine will touch my lips. I will not contact dead bodies. I will have no razor on, on his head. It's a consecration. This was not a bargaining chip, though, for Hannah. Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. The reason why I know that is that the Nazarite vows were mostly temporary. Hannah is asking for a son and then turns around and says, he will be with you forever. Think about that for a minute. All that my son will bring me, not just get rid of the shame, but... The work in the fields, the, the idea he'll take care of me, the idea that I, I will be able to be okay as I get older, all that is out the window if he's going to serve the Lord in the temple all the days of his life. He would not be able to take care of her in her old age. She laid aside every benefit a son could give her. Why? Because Hannah had come to realize that her satisfaction was not in the son, but in her God. It was his purposes, not her purposes, which satisfy her, which show her forth her value and her worth. She was learning what Corinthians tells us Paul wrote to them when he said, for whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Eli sees her praying and he thinks she's drunk. I mean, she can't catch a break. Husband not sure what to do. Penina's... uh, causing all kinds of problems, and now the priest, the leader of Israel, thinks she's drunk. What's interesting, we'll see ironically in the next uh, two weeks from now, is that he is ready to say, you're drunk, and she's not. Meanwhile, his sons, who are serving in the temple, are a bunch of drunken sexual perverts. In fact, Woodhouse, he's he's a commentator, he writes this, I think this is great. He says, if Israel had a leader, talking about Eli, If Israel had a leader who could not tell the difference between a godly woman's heartfelt prayer and drunken rambling, no wonder Israel had a leadership crisis. (laughs) No kidding. The plot, the conflict, the climax, which leads to the resolve. Verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate... And her face was no longer sad. Joy in the presence of God had reached her face. They rose early in the morning and worshiped the Lord. Then they went back to the house of Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. You see what the narrator's doing? The narrator wants us to see the contrast between Hannah, who was downhearted, too downhearted and too downcasted who was without hope and unable to eat. And then there's Hannah who emerges from God's presence full of hope and confidence. Although her circumstances per se have not changed, she found peace with God. A peace that left her heart satisfied and capable of eating and returning to her family. And notice that she rejoiced before she received a son. Even knowing that if she did receive one, She had renounced everything she had previously hoped for in him. Hannah's satisfaction and joy was not dependent on obtaining a son. It was found in God. God of her salvation, which we'll get to next week. 
That is what Hebrews 11.6 says. That is impossible. Without faith to please God, we must believe that he exists and is a rewarder for those who seek him. The reward is him. He reveals himself to us as the one true living God. She pours out her troubles and her souls to the Lord and comes to the point when she realizes that God's purposes are greater than hers. William Cowper in a famous hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much, the clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings upon your head. End quote. God alone becomes her, her ultimate treasure. And because she's resting in him, in his goodness and love, no longer looks to children to provide her worth, value, and meaning. This, she's resting in God. And this beautiful transition from a woman who is deeply hurt and hopeless to a place of peace and assurance is because she's trusting in the Lord. She found her life. She found her security. She found her identity. She found her significance in God. She's set free from the bondage of the idolatry of her family. And her name, Hannah, is perfect because it means grace. It means grace. Israel wanted a king. Israel wanted a king because they were not satisfied with God. They, they did not trust him. They, they wanted someone else to bring them prosperity and stability that they believed they needed. So they sought a king in order to give that to them. Hannah wanted a son. She too needed prosperity and stability. But to both of them, God is saying, your satisfaction is in me, in me alone. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This narrative is not meant to say, God gives you what you want when you pray earnestly each and every time. As long as you're honest and pour out your heart, you get what you want. Sometimes the answer is no. The point is not that every woman who prays to God for a child will become pregnant or any other deep pain that you're facing will be miraculously fixed when you want it. The story's about God. His purposes and his glories, that's the starting point. And however the mind of the infinite God decides to get glory, that will be the answer to our prayers. God only, not only answers Hannah's prayer for a son, God also fulfilled his greatest purposes. God would raise up Samuel as a prophet to anoint Saul and then King David. And through King David, God would bring the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be Savior of the world. You see, God's plan is much bigger than you and for me. For centuries later, a king would be born, the king of kings, to a young teenage mother who had no children from a small, obsolete town called Nazareth. She too would understand what it would be like to give her son to the Lord. And years later, Jesus finds himself in, in, in deep, agonizing prayer, Mark 14. And he is agonizing in prayer himself. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter and John, and it says that he was greatly distressed and troubled, literally uh, astonished and terrified, afraid, or surprised. He's contemplating the cup, the cup of God he's about to drink, the full fury of God's judgment and wrath for our sins. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Watch him pray. Very sorrowful, overcome with horror. One expositor says this, he felt the shutting horror of the terrible ordeal. He was going to the cross. He was going to drink of the cup. Luke says that blood drops fell from his brow. And he cries out to the Father in prayer. If it were possible, Abba, all things are possible for you, but remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. The cup he will drink. That's why he came. Divine justice be poured out on him. Jesus knows what happens next. He continues to Calvary, where he will cry out again. And this time on Calvary, he will cry out and he will not receive an answer. He will cry out on Calvary, and all he gets was darkness and silence as all our sin and filth and shame is being poured out on him. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the midst of that cry, darkness, we could never completely understand. 
Jesus is forsaken so that people like Hannah and you and me can be brought in. Into the very presence of God. From agony in the garden and the way to the cross where he will ultimately experience hell separated from the Father for you and me so that you can know his salvation and you become his treasure. How do you know you're valuable to God? If God does not love you and hate sin, pour out wrath, you don't. But how do you know how much the God of the universe loves you? Is when you look at the cross and you see the judgment, the justice, the wrath poured out because he hates sin. He hates that rebellion. And then you look back at the cross and you see how much you are loved and valued and what he would do and go through to make you his treasure. That's what this table's about. This table is an invitation by Jesus himself through the work of his Holy Spirit. He's in heaven, his spirit is here, and he's inviting believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the table. The bread represents his body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. It's not a king's table, it's a table for all Christians. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the band's gonna come up, we're gonna do what the scripture tells, we're gonna spend time in prayer, confessing our sins, then we're repenting of sins, I mean to turn from sin, and then we don't stay there, we celebrate. We celebrate by taking of the bread, taking of the cup, and remembering the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, and we're asking God to have mercy upon us, forgive us of our sins, and God forgives our sin. Past, present, and future, if you belong to him. And we celebrate that redemption. And God will strengthen us through this time together. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in? What is your greatest treasure? Where is your heart in times of difficulties and hardship? Is it resting and trusting in God who has done so much for us? The cross shows us how much he loves us and how much he takes sin seriously but what he's willing to do to call you to himself so you may be in his presence and to know him and to love him and for his love to be poured out on you. Father, we thank you for this story, this narrative. We thank you Uh, Not only as we recognize Hannah's faith, but we are definitely want to acknowledge the object of her faith, and that's you. You're the hero of every story. You're the God who cares. You're the God who sees. You're the God who, who answers prayer. But most importantly, Lord, you're the God who brings us into a relationship with you so that all the things of this world cannot and can be taken not as idolatry, but that we can just trust you in all things, Lord. And some people here, and I don't know where everyone's at, Lord, you do. Uh, maybe there's some very, very difficult times they're going through, Father. We just pray that um, as they look to you, you will be their God, you will be their Savior, and they can trust and rely upon you, for you are sovereign and good. And Lord, all things work together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to continue to worship as we respond, as our greatest treasure is Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.